front of you. Is there anything that could convince you to jump down the side of a mountain? If you're familiar with the story of the Princess Bride, you know that Princess Buttercup finds herself in the custody of a man dressed in black with a black mask, whom she believes is the dread pirate Roberts who has killed her true love. So after a heated argument, she pushes him down the side of the mountain and says, you can die for all I care. And as he falls down the mountain, he calls out, as you wish. And she realizes this is her true love. She realizes who he is, and that changes everything about how she relates to him. And that knowledge enables her and compels her to throw herself down the side of the mountain after him because she wants to be with him and follow him. So understanding someone's true identity doesn't just tell you who he is. It tells you, and it can change everything, about how you relate to that person. So in this passage we're going to study today, we're going to see that Peter is shown who Jesus really is, and that changes everything. The knowledge of who Jesus is not only enables, but compels the disciples to be willing to lose all things in order to gain Christ and to be with him. As one minister said, one look of Christ's sweet and lovely eye is worth 10,000 worlds of such rotten stuff as the foolish sons of men set their hearts upon. What God is communicating in this passage is this. Only by seeing Jesus as the suffering servant will you truly understand Jesus and what it means to be his disciple. But because of who Jesus really is, he is worth trading all the world for, even worth trading your life in order to gain him. So in a single sentence, the cross is not only the key work of Jesus, but also the pattern for discipleship. Or to put it another way, we need to see today that the cross is not only redemptive, but also a way of life. If you're going to follow Jesus, you need to make the cross your way of life. The only way you can follow Jesus is by seeing who he really is, which will not only enable, but will compel you to pick up your cross and follow him. So there's going to be three points uh, for the outline today. Number one, blindness and healing. Number two, confession and confusion. And number three, correction and clarity. So let's begin with the first point, blindness and healing. And I'll start off by reading Mark, 8, uh, chapter, or Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 22 through 26. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. One of the key themes in this passage is blindness. And this is not the first time in Mark's gospel that we've encountered this theme of blindness. Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah earlier and applied those verses to his hearers. He said his hearers were a people with dull hearts, heavy ears, and blind eyes. Their eyes did not see, their ears did not hear, and their hearts did not understand. After Jesus has fed five or 4,000 people in the wilderness through a miracle, the Pharisees, the, the self-righteous teachers of the law, they ask him and they demand a sign from him, uh, a sign from heaven to test him. And that request for further proof of Jesus' authority 
or who he is is actually an act of disobedience because it's a failure to see, a failure to believe, and a failure to obey him. This is a, it's a spiritual blindness. It's an inability to recognize the truth. But it's not an innocent blindness. It's culpable or willful because of idolatry and because of forgetting and refusing to see and fear the Lord. The prophet Jeremiah wrote this in Jeremiah 5, 21 through 22. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? And the Pharisees are not the only blind ones in the Gospel of Mark. The disciples are blind too. After the feeding of the 4,000, they get into a boat uh, with Jesus. Uh, and it says this in uh, Mark 8, 16 through 21. You can follow along as I read. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And, so the, and he said to them, do you not yet understand? So the disciples have just seen Jesus miraculously provide bread in the wilderness, just like God provided manna in the wilderness after the exodus. And yet they're blind to who he really is. They're presented as being on, on the brink or, or even sharing in the Pharisees' blindness because they're blind to Jesus' identity and actually, in some ways, opposed to his way in his kingdom. They have eyes, but they cannot see. But the situation is not hopeless. Look back at verse 21. Jesus asks them, do you not yet understand? And so Jesus is holding out the possibility that eventually they will understand. And with the healing of the blind man here, Isaiah revealing who he is and what he came to do. The prophet Isaiah, as we read earlier in the service, wrote about the anointed servant of the Lord. This anointed servant of the Lord would bring forth food in the wilderness. He'd cause the tongue of the mute to sing for joy. The lame would leap like the deer. Sorrow and sighing would flee away. And most pertinent to this passage... The, the anointed servant of the Lord would bring sight to the blind and lead them out of captivity. This servant would lead a way through the sea and the wilderness, just like God did through the exodus out of Egypt. And isn't this exactly what we see in Jesus' ministry? Jesus is portrayed as fulfilling all of these prophecies. He's walked on water, he's commanded the wind and the waves, he's provided bread in the wilderness, he's healed the deaf, the lame, and the blind. And so these miracles are all revealing that Jesus is the prophesied, anointed Messiah, the Christ of God. But if the, if the miracle reveals something about Jesus, it's also revealing something all about Jesus' mission and his goal then, right? So Jesus' mission and goal is to bring sight to the blind. Which brings up the question, who exactly are the blind ones that Jesus came to heal? Clearly, he came and healed some physical blindness. Right? But he also came to heal spiritual blindness. The disciples are spiritually blind. And so spiritual blindness really is the human condition. We are all like the disciples apart from the saving work of Christ. Which means that spiritual blindness 
is your condition apart from Christ. Without Christ healing you, you are blind to Jesus' identity and what his identity is. And the disciples have ear, unless you are in Christ, you, just like the Pharisees. And the disciples have ears, but do not hear, and eyes, but do not see. And in your blindness, you are opposed to the way of Christ and have rejected God from being Lord and Master over your life and have gone your own way. This is what the Bible calls sin and rebellion and idolatry. Just like the miracles of God, God is in your midst now. But the problem is, unless Christ heals you of your blindness, you can't see God. You can't see God breaking into your midst, uh, and you need a miracle. You need to be healed by God. So if you want to participate in the kingdom of God and in the restoration of all things through Jesus, the servant of the Lord, then you actually need to see. You need to see God. You need to see who Jesus is. Otherwise, you will remain blind and be ignorant of Jesus and outside of him and all of his blessings. So a question confronting you in this passage is, will you be healed and see, or will you continue in blindness? Having seen what Jesus' healing tells us about Jesus and about our human condition, uh, let's move on to our second point, confession and confusion. So follow along as I read Mark 8, 27 to 33. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So notice that phrase in verse 27, on the way. Faith is following Jesus on the way and not demanding a sign like the Pharisees did. Do you demand a sign in order to follow Jesus? Or Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And their response shows us basically the preeminence of Jesus in the, in the popular mind. John, Elijah, and one of the prophets, you know, these are big characters and important, but all that preeminence is not enough to describe who Jesus actually is. And I think what we need to see here is where do we get our info on Jesus? Do you get your info on Jesus from the crowds, from popular belief, from your own desires? Or do you seek your info on Jesus from Jesus himself and from the scriptures that testify to him? Getting your info on Jesus from Jesus himself and the scriptures is the only way to know him rightly. That's why it's not optional to read your Bible and study your Bible and ask that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes as you read. Jesus then asks in verse 29, who do you say that I am? And this question is the central question of the Gospel of Mark, and everything hinges on the answer. Peter answers, you are the Christ. And this confession is significant because previously in Mark's Gospel, up to this point, the disciples have only expressed wonder and bewilderment at who Jesus is. 
And now for the first time, the disciples actually see who Jesus is. So Peter recognizes what we saw from Isaiah uh, and from what all of Jesus' acts and teaching and miracles were pointing to, that Jesus is the anointed Messiah. He's the spirit-anointed servant prophesied by the book of Isaiah, and he is the anointed son of David prophesied in, uh, in the book of Samuel and in Psalm 2. So this, this is a, uh, those of you that are familiar with Matthew's gospel know that at, the, at, at this point in Matthew's gospel, Matthew writes uh, that Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. But Mark doesn't have this detail in it. So why would Mark leave this detail out? I think Mark omits the, the sentence or the saying, but he's saying the detail just in a different way. So remember that immediately prior to this, Jesus asked the disciples, having eyes, do you not see? The blind man had eyes and didn't see until Jesus laid his hands on him in a miracle and opened his eyes. And so the thing that Mark is communicating here is that Jesus is laying his hands on the disciples and opening their eyes to see uh, who Jesus is. So this is a miraculous healing and gift of God that they're able to see who Jesus is. And that, that healing of their spiritual blindness is just as much or more of a miracle as Christ's healing of physical blindness. One commentator said that this section here is highlighting Jesus' struggle to get the disciples to see anything at all. And that misreads this section. Jesus is not the one struggling. He just opened the eyes of the physically blind, and he is now doing it again with his disciples' spiritually blindness, spiritual blindness. So Jesus is not struggling. He is the victor, and he is working miracles. Do you believe that Jesus can open the eyes of the spiritually blind? Beg Jesus to touch you and heal you of your blindness to him and his works and his ways. Do you want to see Jesus? Do you want to be healed? He invites you to come to him and be healed. Do not tarry. Do not wait. Come to him in repentance. Confess your sins and your idolatry and your blindness and turn away from your sins and idolatry to worship and serve and obey him and come to him in faith. Believe that he can heal. Believe that his death, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension made a way to heal all of your sins, that it's all paid for, and that he can forgive. Christian, do you believe that Jesus can open the eyes of the spiritually blind? Not sure if you caught this before, but look again at verse 22. Some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So, almost certainly, the blind man was a beggar because he had no means of procuring the food and whatever else he needed, right? So he was likely a beggar, but he's not the one who begs in this passage. The ones who beg in this passage are the friends. His friends are the one that beg Jesus to touch him. So do you beg Jesus like that for the ones that you love? Do you believe that one touch of Jesus can heal your friends and loved ones? Jesus is able to heal those around you, so bring people to Jesus and beg him to touch him, touch them. Uh, here are some ideas for how to do that. Uh, number one, bring people into your home. So before dinner, when you have people into your home, you can actually share the entire gospel in your prayer before dinner. You can praise God that he is a holy and righteous creator and worthy of obedience and worship. You can confess that all have sinned and disobeyed, and you can ask for God's help. Thank God for the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And you can ask for God's help to respond in faith and repentance. 
And so right even before dinner, you uh, read some scripture. Okay, and then after dinner, do family worship. So uh, read some scripture, pray, and sing a hymn. And so by bringing people into your home like that, you can bring them to Jesus and beg him to touch them. You can also read the Bible with them. One study, uh, fairly recent, found that 61% of unchurched people in their 20s would read the Bible with a friend if they were asked. A lot of us think that it's intimidating to share the gospel with friends and coworkers. But guess what? It's not intimidating when you're reading the Bible with them and the Bible does it for you. So who can you ask this week to read the Bible with you? Bring them to Jesus and beg him to touch them. Also, you could bring friends to church. I'm thankful to God that in college, one friend invited me to a healthy local church and another convinced me from the scriptures that I needed to be a member of the local church. Can you be that kind of friend and bring somebody to Jesus and beg him to touch them? And then notice also at the end of the healing, Jesus sends him back to his own home. Often the people we need to share Christ with are in our own homes. So mothers, every time that you read the Bible with your kids, memorize scripture, pray for them, pray with them, sing a hymn with them. In all of those hundreds and hundreds of moments, you are bringing your children to Jesus and begging him to touch them. All those moments matter and they're worth it because you're bringing your children to Jesus and asking them, asking Jesus to do for them what only he can do, which is to give them a sight of himself. So keep going, persevere. Your duties are many and your reward is sure. Have faith that God will bless it. And fathers, teach your children. Fathers, you have an especially large influence on your children. You need to be daily reading the Bible and praying in front of your children and singing hymns or songs with them. John Payton wrote this about his father's prayers. How much my father's prayers at this time impressed me, I can never explain, nor could any stranger understand. When on his knees, and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus. And for every personal and domestic need, we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior, just to look at the light on my father's face and wish I were like him in spirit, hoping that in answer to it of the heathen world. God did answer the prayers of John Payton's father. Because of the prayers of his father. Not only because God answered the prayers of his father, but because he saw his father praying for those things. And whole islands were saved to the glory of Christ because of John Payton's ministry. So fathers, be diligent in leading your family, in, in reading scripture and praying and singing hymns. Uh, if you want help to get started, uh, we just had a Sunday school on that. You can talk to Curtis afterward or you can talk to any of the elders uh, if that's something you want help on. So after this miraculous healing to make Peter see, Jesus then proceeds to teach and reveal more about who he is and what he came to do. In fact, the question, who is Jesus, is directly connected to the question, what has God sent him to do? So let's read verses 31 through 33 again. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So notice in verse 31 that Jesus said he must 
suffer many things. Jesus knows what he must suffer. He knows he must be rejected and killed, but he also knows what those things will accomplish. He knows his blood will cover all the sins of his people and heal their blindness and secure their redemption and their resurrection. So he must do this in order to save them. Jesus must be rejected and killed because the kingdom of God does not come through military or political conquest, but through suffering and redemption. Jesus was not compelled to suffer, but rather he chose to suffer. And so Peter, in his rebuke of Jesus, he was rebuking the wisdom of Christ. Peter was inverting the relationship of teacher and student, of leader and follower. So what about you? Do you learn from Christ? Or do you want to jam him into your own wisdom? Do you learn from him? Or do you rebuke, rebuke him when he acts in your wisdom? Do you rebuke him when you don't get your way? Do you rebuke him when he acts in, your, in, in a way that's contrary to your own wisdom? In your own not dimly, not clearly. So just like, just like the blind man, this, this miracle of Jesus opening Peter's eyes happened in parts. Peter saw it dimly because he missed something. A disciple actually has to do more than just get the title right. You actually need to follow and conform your way of life to Christ. Jesus' true identity is only revealed through suffering, the suffering of the cross. Peter wanted, to be, Peter wanted Jesus to be the anointed Christ, but not the suffering servant. He wanted everything to go well for Jesus, not for him to be rejected and killed. So are there ways in which you and I don't want Jesus to be the suffering Savior? If he is a suffering savior, then it means that somebody is a sinner and somebody needs to be saved. And that means that you and I are that someone. The cross is proof and explanation of what sin is and what sin deserves. And if Jesus is a suffering savior, then it means something fundamental about the kingdom of God. If rejection and death are fundamental to who Christ is and what he came to do, then it means rejection and, and death are fundamental to our life in the kingdom. Servants are not better than their masters. So who do you say that Jesus is? Everything hangs on the answer. To put it in our modern terms, do you say that Jesus is some sort of Santa or moral example or good teacher or therapeutic prayer partner that makes you feel better when you're sad? Who do you really say Jesus is? And do you believe what you say? Peter's, Peter shows us that we, need us do, we must do more then simply get Jesus' title right. If you, if you know that he's the Messiah, if you know that he's the Christ, and you get that title right, but you don't follow him, then that gains you nothing. True sight means embracing Jesus' declaration that the Messiah must die, and that he must die for you. So you have to admit your guilt and your need of a Savior and reach out to Jesus in faith and repentance. And for the kids especially, I know for a fact that most of you can get all the titles right of Jesus. But that won't do you any good unless you personally and really repent, confess your own sin, and you must, you must uh, follow Jesus as your own Lord. And also, we should ask ourselves, do you have beliefs about Jesus that are satanic? Jesus rebukes Peter because he sees Peter's, Jesus rebukes him and says that that there, or his, um, his correction of Jesus, right? Jesus rebukes him and says that that 
that rebuke is opposed to the essential design and purpose of the incarnation. And this shows us that it's possible to spend a massive amount of time with Jesus and still out at the doctor, right? Name, Christian, that is our reality. So it's like one of those forms you fill out at the doctor, right? Name, Christian. Address, not in heaven yet. Occupation, following Jesus on the way. Major medical conditions, still partially blind. Whether you've been following Jesus for six months or 60 years, you are still part. See him in his word, be humble and contrite, and implore him to keep healing and keep helping you see him more clearly. And have hope. Peter, Jesus kept his faith from faith. He still made a bunch more mistakes, but Jesus kept his faith from failing. So take courage, Christian. You will make more mistakes, but Jesus will not let your faith fail. So Peter was partially blind, and just like in the healing of the blind man, Jesus will not stop until full healing is reached. One writer said, Christ never doeth his work by the halves nor leaves it till he can say, it is finished. So now we turn to our third point, Jesus' correction, Peter. So follow along as I read Jesus' correction and continued healing of Peter. So follow along as I read uh, chapter 8, verses 34 through chapter 9, 1. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. So here Jesus teaches us what we must do if we would be disciples. So just as Jesus must be killed on a cross, so also his disciples must carry a cross. The cross is not only redemptive, but it is also the way of life for a disciple. And you need to make the cross your way of life if you would be a disciple. Notice that Jesus says uh, in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, and then at the end of the verse, he must follow me. In the original language, that's the same word. So if anyone would follow me, he must follow me, which seems obvious, but I think it's something that we really need to see because uh, we have this idea that we can follow without actually following, just like Peter did. We can't follow Jesus if we don't actually follow him. But how do we need to follow him then? This is what the text says. We need to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow him. So the image of the cross here, carrying a cross, is one of a condemned individual, already condemned to death, bearing the beam of their cross to their site of crucifixion. So denying yourself does not mean you have to live a life of ascetic self-denial just for self-denial's sake. Cross-bearing is also not just a life of hardship. No, it means you subject yourself to excruciating death through execution on a cross. Crucifixion was a tool of maximum torture and humiliation where the condemned were festering wounds and asphyxiation, sometimes over several days uh, from exposure, festering wounds, and asphyxiation. 
So denying yourself and carrying your cross means that you renounce your claim on yourself, your ambitions, your goals, your desires, your preferences, and you submit to Christ as his slave. If you want to be a disciple, you must renounce your own ambitions and follow Jesus fully, even to the point of death. You're going to have to die in order to be resurrected, just like Jesus. And it is by this cross-bearing and following Jesus that a disciple actually saves his life. Jesus carried his cross on the way to his death. But he also knew he would rise again, which means Jesus carried his cross on the way to his resurrection. So we are walking around being given over to death for Christ's sake, trusting that he will raise us up on the last day. The disciples did understand this in the end. Most of them lost their lives for Christ's sake in the Gospels. Do we understand that? Do we understand that the cross has to be our way of life? Do you believe that for his sake, you can suffer the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that you may gain Christ? This profit and exchange language here in verses 36 and 37, right? Commercial language, like buying and selling and trading, or you can even think of it like gains and losses. What's the price? Will you retain your body and lose your soul? Earlier, uh, he was imprisoned and sentenced to death for his faith, and he said this, you shall see that one look of, of Christ's sweet and rotten stuff as the foolish sons of men set their hearts upon him. So what, what rotten stuff? Is your heart set on today? Maybe you're so distracted by rotten things this morning that you haven't even asked your question, yourself the question that Jesus is asking here. What does it profit you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Have you put Jesus' question on your heart and in your head? Is he getting through to you or do you have ears but can't hear? Do you have eyes but you can't see that he is worth giving up all for? What does it profit you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Now, maybe you're here sitting there and you're thinking, I don't want to gain the whole world. Like Lucy in, in the uh, Peanuts Christmas story, right? All I want is my fair share. All I want is what I have coming to me. But that's the problem here. If the whole world can't satisfy, then gaining just your fair share is even more to be pitied, right? It's an argument from, from greater to lesser. Anything that you could reasonably get your hands on in this life is absolutely nothing compared to Christ. Whatever thing you have your heart set on that is less satisfying than Christ cannot satisfy you. And if you trade Christ for that thing, you will gain nothing and forfeit your soul. And how do we know that Christ is satisfying? That there's enough joy in him to satisfy all our desires, such that trading the whole world and even our lives for him is worth it? How do we know that? Because God the Father and God the Spirit spent all of eternity enjoying Christ. So if Christ can satisfy an infinite God for an infinite amount of time, he can satisfy your heart. Will you trade everything for him? Will you give up the vain things that charm you most and sacrifice them at the cross so that you can have him? Jesus says you must die daily, and by conforming yourself to his death, you will live, and he will give you himself, and he is worth more than 10,000 worlds. And don't dread the loss of your life. Death holds no power over you when you know that you will be raised again. You really can lose everything because Jesus will raise it up on the last day. Your body is not your most treasured part of you. Jesus can resurrect it. Jesus is the greatest treasure. Think of Jim Elliott's famous quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Dread the loss of your soul and give away all else 
that you may gain Christ. Give up your ambitions, your desires, your comforts. Give it all away and gain Christ. Verse 38 contains a warning about being ashamed of Jesus and his words. Uh, Verse 38 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. One writer wrote this, Those who are ashamed of Christ in this world where he is despised, he will be ashamed of in that world where he is eternally adored. Do you want disgrace now and glory for all of eternity, or false glory now and disgrace for all of eternity? John Flavel tells a story of a knight in France uh, during some persecutions, and uh, this knight was of a very high order of knights, and he was put in prison around all of them with chains, uh, people of inferior social status. And so the jailer bound all of them with chains, uh, but did not bind the knight because of his, his high social status. And the knight was greatly offended by that, uh, that omission, and he said, why do you not honor me with a chain for Christ also? And create me a knight of that illustrious order of those who have worn chains for Christ. The Apostle Paul said to you, it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. So it is an honor and a gift to suffer for Christ who suffered for us. Do you try to avoid shame for Christ? Do you try to avoid it at Thanksgiving when you're talking with your unbelieving friends and family? Do you try to avoid it at the water cooler at work? Or are you willing to suffer for Christ, considering it an honor and a gift to suffer for his sake? A lot of these themes are are brought home in the story of the two Margarets from Scotland in the 1600s. So there were two women who were sentenced to death for refusing to swear an oath that they regarded as blaspheming Jesus. One was 70 and one was 18, and they were both named Margaret. So the soldiers thought they would slowly being go at low tide to stakes so that as the water came up, they would slowly be engulfed and drowned. They tied the older Margaret uh, deeper so that the waters would engulf her first. And the townspeople pleaded with them to swear the oath, and they wouldn't do it. So as the, as the cold waters rose higher and higher and began to engulf the older Margaret, the soldiers watched the younger, they made the younger Margaret watch her struggles. And they asked her, what do you think of her now? And she responded, think? I see Christ wrestling there. Think ye that we are the sufferers? No, it is Christ in us. For he sends none a warfare at their own charges, which they must fight alone. So the waters continued to rise past the older Margaret, and the younger Margaret sang hymns and recited Romans 8. The soldiers, when she was basically almost drowned, the soldiers pulled her out and revived her and tried to get her to swear the oath. And her response was, no, no, no sinful oaths for me. I am one of Christ's children. Let me go. So they threw her back into the water and she drowned and she was brought through martyrdom into the company of those made perfect. Your life, even to death, Do you love Jesus more? Do you believe that all the suffering that you can undergo for his sake in the Gospels, he will suffer with you and bear you will repay more 
Will you join Jesus in suffering, knowing that of his fullness, he will repay more than all he takes away? Are you denying yourself and carrying a cross? There's a particular kind of suffering in here that's in view. It's a suffering for Jesus' sake and for the Gospels. We carry a cross and lose our lives when we suffer and serve like Jesus did. The Son of Man came to serve and not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we live, we carry a cross, nor as precious to myself. When we can say with Paul, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received of the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel. Which kind of brings up a question. Is Jesus actually calling for everybody to be martyred? In God's providence, he may order that some of his saints will be martyred for their faith. It's all the ingredients. will not be. What Jesus is calling for here is the kind of life that contains all the ingredients of martyrdom. So think about it this way. What's the difference between a cake? The ingredients of martyrdom. Following Jesus wherever he leads at all costs. Denying yourself. Taking up a cross and renouncing your claim on yourself and your life. Not being ashamed of Jesus or his words. Being willing to lose all for his sake and the sake of the gospel. Not loving your life even unto death. If only you may serve and testify to Jesus. And a firm view of Christ's face and his person and his goodness. That enables and compels you to join him in his suffering. Those are the ingredients of martyrdom. And, and those are expected and commanded of anyone who would follow Jesus. Whether God does the final mixing and adds the heat at the end of your life is up to him. Your responsibility, if you would follow Jesus, is to be cultivating those attitudes and actions by his grace. Those ingredients of losing your life for Jesus' sake and the gospels every day. And verse 38 warns us, the promise is that the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the Holy Open the eyes of the blind. Who can rise from the dead? Who can come on the clouds of heaven? He is coming in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He is coming. He's coming soon. So how should we live in light of that? We should be unashamed and follow him. Do you want Jesus to open your eyes? The alternative is to stay blind in an attempt to keep your life and lose it for all of eternity. Do you want to see Jesus, see him on the cross, and live and see him now? As we conclude, let's look again at, verse, at chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So this, this uh, truly I say to you, it has the form of an oath or a promise. Jesus is saying it will surely take place. And some of the hearers will live to see it. So that seeing the kingdom come in power ultimately points to his death, resurrection, and ascension. When his glory is revealed and he sits down on his throne and rules his kingdom. But there's a glimpse of this or a breaking in of that reality at the transfiguration, which is the next passage, where Jesus is displayed in his resurrected glory, uh, and, and that glory is being revealed to the hearers. So that's, that's what Jesus is saying. There are some here that will see, some here that will see the resurrection, but also will see this glory revealed in the transfiguration. And so this passage ends in hope. It started off with blindness, but it ends in sight. 
There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The two-step miracle will happen. Jesus will reveal himself to people and cause them to see. And he's doing it even today. Mark's whole gospel, in a way, is an apologetic for the cross. The cross is why Christ came. And to say that he came for anything short of that is to say satanic things about Jesus. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil, and he came to do it by dying on a cross for sinners. Miss that, and you miss who Jesus is, and you miss the point of the Bible. But if you see Jesus, if you really see him, you will be able to follow him and suffer Jesus on the cross, gain him, and be found in him. So do you see Jesus on the cross? Are you denying yourself, carrying a cross and following him? Is he worth 10,000 worlds to you? Let's pray.